Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, good morning. Um, Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I want to thank everybody who's tuning in from home or their work desk and to the thousands here in attendance. We're here to to talk about Sri Lanka, an island nation in the Indian Ocean that doesn't get, in my opinion, nearly enough attention as somebody who watches South Asia but has been in the headlines quite a bit as of late. And when small island nations make their way into the headlines, it's, it's usually for the wrong reasons. And that traditionally has been the case with Sri Lanka. You know, for a long time, international observers were, were mostly interested in Sri Lanka because of the brutal civil war that was fought there for decades against the Tamil Tigers. More recently, Sri Lanka has been held up as sort of the test warning case about the risks of the Belt and Road Initiative and Chinese investments and the financial and non-financial costs that those investments can bring. And most recently, in the last few weeks, Sri Lanka has made headlines because of political crisis there, what some are calling a a soft coup. And I think it's these last two issues that we're going to focus on today, Uh, the recent um, domestic political turmoil, but also uh, the level of Chinese involvement in the country the Belt and Road Initiative, and why uh, Sri Lanka has been sort of held up as this warning sign to others about about the risks of, of the Belt and Road Initiative. But first, I'd like to say, you know, Sri Lanka is not a basket case. It's actually quite a lovely place. I was there with a, a heritage delegation in October, and, you know, this is a country that touts itself uh, you know, as the, the oldest democracy in, in South Asia since the 1930s, a place with relatively strong economic growth, um, has a lot of cooperation with the United States and, and the U.S. military, particularly in the last few years. In some ways, it's been uh, a model case for, for South Asia. It's been a positive story. Um, but there is good reason it's in the headlines now, and, and the BRI and China's growing influence and the implications there and the recent constitutional crisis are, are real concerns. And, uh, you know, these two are not necessarily connected. The, the crisis underway now is a product of, of domestic politics and personal differences between the president and the prime minister. But China's shadow looms large over everything that happens in Sri Lanka now. And uh, there are some connections there that we'll sort of delve into more as we go along. So I'm going to say a a few words uh, about the domestic crisis, and then we're going to turn to our experts here. Uh, Dave Schulman to my left 
is going from is from the um, IRI, the International Republican Institute, formerly with the Intel community, and is going to dig in on on China's influence in Sri Lanka, uh, China's approach to the broader Indian Ocean region, and the the backlash building to the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, to his left is uh, Sadnan Dume from Wall Street Journal and the American Enterprise Institute. And he's going to be looking at uh, India's regional influence and Chinese threats to democracy in South Asia. And to his left is uh, Livia Enos, my colleague here at the Asian Studies Center. And she'll be focusing on uh, human rights concerns, particularly with regard to the Rajapaksas and what a return to power by the Rajapaksas in the future might mean for the human rights situation in Sri Lanka. But to start, I want to just do sort of a brief overview of where we stand uh, with the domestic political situation to kind of set the scene. And uh, after our speakers, uh, I may come back and share some thoughts on, on China and the BRI as well. But first, let's, let's review what has happened and where we are. And to do that with some context, I think we need to go back to the last election in 2015. Uh, President Rajapaksa had ruled the country for a decade. He was popular at home for winning a long conflict, a decisive victory against the Tamil Tigers, who had waged a, a very brutal domestic insurgency. Um, he was ostracized uh, abroad and by human rights experts because in winning that insurgency, he employed some very brutal tactics and um, was not known for respecting civil rights and human rights at home. Um, but he was also criticized for getting very close to the Chinese while he was in power. Um, in 2008, uh, as he was scaling up to wage an offensive against the Tamil Tigers, um, he was looking for military aid and support, and he did not find it from India and the West, and he did find it from China. And shortly after signing the first arms deal in 2007 with China, uh, he signed a deal for China to invest in the Habantota port to build a new port in the president's home district. And what followed was a wave of Chinese investments, billions of dollars in investments, in what some consider to be white elephant projects that did not bring a lot of benefit for Sri Lanka, very controversial projects that we'll talk more about later. Um, but this was sort of the scene coming into the 2015 elections. China's influence was on the rise. President Rajapaksa was relatively popular at home, um, but there were growing questions about the financial sustainability of all these uh, investments Sri Lanka was accepting from China. Now, during that 2015 presidential election, an uh, ally of President Rajapaksa, a foreign minister in his government, defected from his party and challenged him. Um, and surprisingly won the election, bested Rajapaksa. A new president, uh, Sirisena, uh, eventually formed a coalition government with uh, the largest uh, group in parliament, um, led by Prime Minister Wickremesinghe. And Wickremesinghe was seen as the more uh, pro-Western, reform-oriented of the two. Um, but despite forming this coalition, the two have sort of formed a very uneasy truce 
and have been at odds over both personal issues and policy issues ever since, fighting like cats and dogs over the last few years. Which brings us to, to this year. And um, on October 26th of this year, uh, Sirisena surprised domestic and international observers when he essentially suspended parliament and said he no longer recognized the prime minister and sent the country into a domestic political crisis. Now, the, um, the catalyst for this decision appears to have been, from all public reporting, a cabinet meeting held shortly before the announcement in which the president and prime minister were very much at odds. They butted heads over two issues that, that have been sort of brought to the fore. One, the prime minister was arguing for giving a uh, investment deal at the Colombo port to an Indian and Japanese consortium, as had been outlined in a memorandum of understanding the year before. President Sirisena did not agree with that decision, did not want this investment to go to an Indian consortium. And at the cabinet meeting, they butted heads over this, um, the future of the Colombo terminal under discussion. But the president also made a charge that has not been supported by evidence that Indian intelligence uh, had hatched a plot to assassinate him, and he was upset that the prime minister and the rest of the government was not taking this plot seriously and could no longer work with the prime minister and pledged he could never work with him again. And shortly after that, disbanded parliament, a move that most observers uh, in Sri Lanka and outside found to be illegal. Um, there were several votes in parliament that refused to support the president's decision to sack parliament. The Supreme Court weighed in fairly early on and said the president's uh, attempt to hold new elections was illegal and invalid, and it put a stay on, on plans to hold a new election quickly. There was a lot of horse trading going on, ministers and parliamentarians defecting from one group to another, but ultimately, uh, President Sirisena and, and former President Rajapaksa, who Sirisena installed as prime minister illegally, uh, they failed several parliamentary votes. And this week, there was a very uh, big ruling in the Supreme Court, which sort of finally weighed in fairly decisively and said this decision to suspend parliament ultimately was unconstitutional. That according to the Sri Lankan constitution, the president only has the right to disband parliament in this manner after serving for four and a half years. And that point would not be until uh, February 2020. So... We are left in a state where the president maintains that he will not work with Prime Minister Wickramasinghe. He has said in the past, under no circumstances would he work with the former prime minister, even if he received every vote in parliament. Um, however, he has been ordered by the Supreme Court to disband the shadow government that's been put together under former President Rajapaksa. Fortunately, uh, President Rajapaksa's son yesterday uh, announced that they would accept the verdict of the court. It does not look like they will try and challenge the verdict and maintain this shadow government, but we have yet to see how the current president um, will approach this and whether he will recognize uh, Prime Minister Wickramasinghe's authority. Um, if he does not, uh, we, I think we are left in a state of gridlock. Uh, there's, there are mechanisms to impeach the president, 
but that ultimately would require a two-thirds majority in parliament, which they probably do not have. So uh, we are, we're left waiting, essentially, to see what the president's office is going to do. Hopefully there would be an announcement today or this weekend. Uh, they are under a lot of pressure uh, to resolve this political crisis. Their ratings uh, have been downgraded by Fitch this week from a B-plus to a B. Uh, the U.S. has put a significant loan, a compact MCC compact loan, on hold until the crisis is resolved. Japan has put a over $1 billion soft loan uh, on hold until the crisis is resolved. So there's a, uh, and the economy is under pressure. So um, we're sort of waiting with bated breath to see how the president will respond. Um, and with that said, I think uh, that gives you a general sense of, of the current lay of the land. And um, maybe we can dig some more into the China and BRI aspects when we come back around. And I think the, Dave is a great person to kick off that discussion and tell us why and how Sri Lanka made its way into Vice President Mike Pence's speech the other day. <laughs> why has this become such a prominent oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. issue and yeah. example for the Belt and Road that even uh, okay. yeah, U.S. cabinet officials are now including it in their speeches? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, so, yeah, I think I'll, I'll just dig in first um, to China's reaction to the recent crisis, uh, then pull back a little bit, and as Jeff mentioned, kind of talk about uh, how China's been approaching or how it's been viewing what's happened in Sri Lanka really since 2015, um, and then look a little bit at that broader question of what, um, what Sri Lanka means to China and what it means for China's approach to the BRI generally going forward. Um, so in relation to this recent crisis, I think it's fair to say China's taken a took a fairly cautious reaction, reaction uh, re approach, which was wise. Um, when Sarasena replaced the prime minister, uh, or tried to, with uh, former President Rajapaksa, um, Rajapaksa soon tweeted out a picture of himself meeting the Chinese ambassador, uh, whom Rajapaksa claimed had conveyed the congratulations of President Xi Jinping. Uh, most countries, including India, the United States, the UK, Canada, um, expressed concern and urged Sri Lanka to abide by its constitution, uphold democracy, and China, in, um, in, you know, in form, said it always follows the principle of non-interference in other countries' affairs, which is uh, what one would expect China to say on this issue. Um, there have been some accusations, um, including from a deputy minister in the prime minister's administration, saying that China had funneled money um, to support Rajapaksa during this current crisis. Um, you know, who knows whether that's true, but certainly there's um, some precedent there. Um, and that's been denied vehemently by China. But I want to step back and look at um, the broader picture because I think regardless of the outcome of this current crisis, um, if you look at the scope of where uh, we are now since 2015, uh, when China, despite uh, a massive amount of uh, corruption uh, into the election from Chinese entities to support Rajapaksa's campaign, uh, found that their ally lost when Sarasena uh, won the election. But I think it's fair to say that they've been doing actually quite well over the last few years despite, despite that. Um, Saracena turned out to not be uh, someone who was going to stem Colombo's drift uh, toward China, at least not entirely. Um, in late 2016, uh, they agreed to buy military transport airplanes from China. Um, the government offered to renew the China-funded Colombo port project, which had been suspended uh, during the transition of power. Um, and China got increasingly involved also in reconstruction uh, in the north of Sri Lanka, uh, which had traditionally been um, where India had been more dominant uh, in projects. But the biggest focus, of course, uh, as Jeff mentioned, is the China's um, accomplishment at Hamatota Port. Um, 
you know, this, of course, was started uh, and put in train well back before the Belt and Road was a twinkle in Xi Jinping's eye. Um, but it was concluded last year, uh, and that's when Colombo signed the deal for the uh, not an annual lease uh, to China for $1 billion um, to essentially own uh, the port. I'll get into that more uh, a little bit later, but um, that certainly was uh, you know, something that striking that China was able to um, achieve this. Uh, despite the fact that the person that they had worked very hard to have not be elected in 20, 2015 was in power. Um, Sirisina's government also continued to delay implementing several India-funded projects, which, as Jeff mentioned, was um, kind of part of the um, problem that led to the, uh, led to the, head, uh, led to the um, conflict between the president and prime minister coming to a head just recently. Nevertheless, all that said, I think it's fair to say that China would be ecstatic if Rajapaksa returned to power now or later, perhaps next year. Um, Rajapaksa has re relied on China, um, of course, to help end um, the civil war in Sri Lanka. Um, Beijing funded uh, the Sri Lankan government's wish list for military hardware at that time. And in the immediate post-war years, it defended the Rajapaksa government in multiple um, international human rights forums as well. And afterward, China played a major role in Sri Lanka's post-war uh, infrastructure rebuilding. Um, they uh, undertook numerous loss-making projects. Um, including the port, but also the uh, Rajapaksa <laughs> International Airport, known as the world's emptiest airport. Um, and rather than spur on sustain sustainable growth, these projects have really driven Sri Lanka into an uh, unsustainable debt problem. And, um, and in 2016, they had to uh, pursue debt relief from the IMF after foreign debt exploded from 36% of GDP in 2010 to 94% in 2015. Sri Lanka currently still owes billions to China. By some estimates, I've seen it's, it's $8 billion dollars. Uh, even with the Humbantota deal erasing $1 billion of that uh, in, in return for the port project. And in May, um, the China Development Bank gave Sri Lanka another billion-dollar loan. Uh, interestingly, I saw reportedly in the, in the midst of this crisis in the last couple months, Roger Pox's disputed cabinet approved two more contracts uh, with Chinese firms worth more than $50 million combined. It's just fascinating. This just continues to roll ahead despite what's happened. So in general, I think Roger Pox's resurgence bolsters China's interest in gaining more influence uh, in the island's politics and development. But I think it's also fair to say at a broader strategic level, um, over the last three years, China's accomplished quite a bit uh, in its relationship with Sri Lanka for its broader purposes in the Indian Ocean region. Um, you know, I, I would say China is not looking to exclusively dominate the Indian Ocean region. It's not looking primarily to contain India, which is something we often hear uh, from our Indian friends. It's not looking to set up a South China Sea-like territorial expansion with Sri Lanka or the Maldives or anything uh, in, in, in uh, the Indian Ocean. But it's undeniably seeking a much more influential role in the Indian Ocean region on all levels across the political, economic, and military domains. Um, it's trying to regularize what it's been doing in the Indian Ocean, both militarily and otherwise, and just getting regional countries, especially India, but also the United States, uh, used to the notion of China as a very big player uh, in this space. Uh, I think it's... Uh, kind of interesting and instructive to look sometimes at how um, the Chinese are, uh, what kind of PR spin they're putting on things, even if you have to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, there was a maritime security conference in October in Colombo, uh, organized by the Sri Lankan Navy and the Ministry of Defense. I don't know if you were at that, but uh, a plan, uh, PLA Navy Real Ad Rear Admiral uh, portrayed China as, pro as a provider of global goods such as security and stability in the region saying no single country is enough, has enough to handle the situation, meaning you know, this is not India's ocean, even though it's the Indian Ocean, something we've heard from China for years. 
uh, and underlining that China wanted to play a role in maritime security co to construct and maintain a free, open, inclusive, and cooperative maritime order in the Indian Ocean, which, of course, sounds very familiar. sounds a lot like the free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, but it's important to note that regardless of what happens in the political tumult um, we've seen in the last uh, couple months, China has really achieved something significant at Hamban Toda. Uh, it is strategically important. Um, uh, obviously, uh, Sri Lanka straddles the Indian Ocean trade routes, linking Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And also, of course, it's just a few hundred miles from India's shores. Um, although the final agreement uh, did bar foreign countries from using the port for military purposes, unless granted permission by Colombo, um, and the government says it's not going to allow China to have access, it could, certainly you know, is conceivable that as Sri Lanka gets even more dependent on China and as a government, new government perhaps come in, comes into Sri Lanka, they may make different choices going down the road. Um, and such fears um, gained traction in 2014 when multiple times Chinese submarines docked at Colombo Harbor. On the debt trap issue, um, you know, I think Hamantota uh, certainly starkly illustrates the fact that Chinese fin financing can ultimately undermine countries um, with debt loads. Uh, by offering loans at very high market-based rates that are non-concessional or grant-based um, and without transparency. Um, and it makes sense that um, Sri Lanka, because of Hambantota, is now the poster child for this debt trap diplomacy meme that is, that is um, very powerful right now and I think you know, has some, some validity to it. Um, but I would also argue that there's little evidence that China does this everywhere. Um, there is... Uh, not a you know cabal of Chinese leaders sitting in Jiangnanhai in the Chinese leadership camp compound trying to plot the next debt trap uh, around the world. Um, you even see on Hambantota from the stories that you can find in the New York Times and elsewhere that China initially was not offering punitive terms. It actually was offering a rate around 1% to 2% interest. And then as the Sri Lankans kept coming back for fresh credit, uh, it eventually reached where it got to, which was well above of 6%, um, which one could argue is punitive. Um, that said, there are lots of other ways in which China's approach through Belt and Road, uh, through at Sri Lanka, but also elsewhere, has many negative implications. We do not need to go into a um, kind of hype the problems with what China's doing through Belt and Road because there are plenty that are, that are quite real. Um, the opacity and the nature of which China conducts its deals um, concluded in secret between Chinese banks, Chinese SOEs, and um, willing uh, host governments. Um, the corruption that's been inherent in the way the Chinese SOEs uh, do their business in countries. As Jeff mentioned, a lot of white elephant projects that um, ultimately bolster the kind of short-term fortunes of politicians in developing countries but serve no long-term purpose for those countries. Um, the labor environmental problems with a lot of these projects, I could go on. So there are lots of real problems with the way China's conducting the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, and I think it's important to focus in on those and focus in on the specific cases where you see um, a level of punitive debt, but not to get overly focused on that issue. I think it's also, you know, I think this needs to be dug into more, but I think there's good reason to believe that where a place is more strategic, like Sri Lanka, like Djibouti, um, others, uh, you see China more willing to throw good money after bad um, and, and throw more um, credit at a country that can't pay it back, right? Um, otherwise, it doesn't actually make any economic sense. And there's no reason that I've seen to believe that China is trying to acquire strategic assets everywhere, like you know, the Zambian electrical sector, or to, to pick something that's not necessarily as strategic as a port that is, that is where Hambantota is. 
Regardless, uh, I think, you know, China's bad behavior has gotten a lot of attention because of Sri Lanka, um, which, is, which is fascinating in and of itself. Um, and it's clear that China has some big challenges to surmount uh, in Sri Lanka and more broadly in terms of its, its BRI brand. Um, just in the last couple of years in, Sri Lanka, in uh, South Asia, uh, it's kind of the place people look at to understand the implications of rapid growing Chinese influence. Um, and the re results aren't looking terribly good. Um, you know, obviously in the Maldives is a good example as well. Uh, eight years ago, Beijing didn't even have an embassy there. And now um, they account for a remarkable amount of tourists. I think a quarter of the Maldives foreign tourists and two-thirds of its external debt. Um, and this new administration has come in um, and is now trying to resolve that problem and, and kind of on a daily basis, um, I think, surprised at how deeply the former administration had gotten in uh, with China. Um, and that links to my other point, which is that Chinese influence and investment have been decisive factors in numerous elections uh, in the last year um, where there's been upsets, Pakistan, the Maldives. Um, if you bring in Southeast Asia, you could look at Malaysia, uh, where candidates have run on um, um, to make the point that uh, what China's been doing, or at least the deals that we've been uh, striking with China, are not necessarily in our long-term interests. Um, and I think there's also been greater... Uh, attention drawn to the fact that in many places where Chinese influence has grown, not just in South Asia, but, you know, throughout the world, um, governments have turned more authoritarian. Um, you could see that with Yameen, Rajapaksa, Najib, Hun Sen in Asia, but you could look at any number of countries in Africa and, and elsewhere. So uh, I think the question is how will China react to that problem with its BRI brand going forward? We've seen Xi Jinping uh, come out and start to um, say some of the right things that people are wanting him to say. They had the fifth anniversary of BRI um, just a couple months ago. Um, Xi Jinping talking about, um, you know, a lot of win-win kind of claptrap, but also talking about um, maybe extending loans, renegotiating loans, making sure there's less corruption. Um, you know, uh, and a more fundamental question of whether what's happening in democracies that have elected people who want to review Chinese projects is really going to uh, underline for China its precariousness um, of its position in a lot of these countries and the need to change approach, or is it ultimately judging that, you know, we may have some temporary problems, but our money and influence will ultimately win the day? Um, and you've seen China also learn that lesson in places like Zambia um, and others where people came to power on theoretically anti-China campaigns but changed their tune ultimately. Um, I think in some places, uh, China will be more selective in projects going forward. They'll be more sensitive to risk. They'll be more wary of the terms of the deals that they strike uh, for fear largely that they'll get exposed. Uh, more concerned about massive corruption, as I said, um, and more willing to renegotiate loans. Um, and we've seen that already in, in Africa uh, after the forum on uh, China-Africa cooperation a couple months ago. They may be a little bit better going forward in consulting in local communities uh, and activists before setting projects in motion. But I think in many places where the microscope isn't on them and where there's weak governance and where there's little media oversight, um, and I think in these places you'll have state-owned enterprises operate pretty much uh, the same as they, they have been. Um, I think it'll be treated more as a PR problem and less as a, a driver to fundamentally change the way China does business. Um, and I think China will double down on the efforts to manipulate officials and the information space in a lot of these countries to cultivate thought leaders. A lot of this is the sharp power issue that, that people have been talking about um, uh, after the NED put out an excellent report on that. Um, and I think they'll be, be doing this to advance China's narrative to quiet criticism of what China's doing in a lot of countries. 
Um, you know, you hear it all the time uh, in this region, in South Asia, but elsewhere, that China is very effective at bringing officials to China, uh, media, um, people in corruption, cor uh, doing anti-corruption work in the administrative, administrative space. Um, and they bring them there for weeks at a time, and they take them to very nice hotels and give them very nice meals. And, you know, you might think, oh, this, this isn't going to work. But it actually, it actually has an effect, and people's either their minds are genuinely changed or at least they decide, you know, I, going forward I'm not going to go home and, um, and speak poorly of what China's doing in my country. So that, that has an effect and it's something we should be watching and I think it's something that we should also be doing our, ourselves is actually training people and, you know, we have some of the best, um, you know, we could have, be training people on, on all kinds of governance issues um, and media issues and we should be doing more of that. We already do some of it. We should be doing more of it. Um, and we should be bolstering civil society, media, uh, and the opposition in a lot of these countries so that they have the knowledge of what China's doing um, to influence across their political system, and then they can expose it uh, and protect their own democracy. Um, so in closing, I'll just say, I think um, from the last few years, what China's learned is that it was able to get through a pretty unstable period uh, after their uh, preferred um, friend and ally lost in 2015 by managing the message, by cultivating um, those in power by any means necessary, and by making themselves indispensable, uh, as well as by not um, appearing to be overly um, involved in the country's politics, even if it was um, building massive influence behind the scenes on an economic scale. Um, so I'll close there. Uh, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you to Jeff and to Heritage for for having me and also for hosting this event on Sri Lanka, which uh, I don't think gets as much attention as it ought to in Washington. And I'm really you know, glad that Heritage is one of the few institutions that has over the years paid attention to Sri Lanka uh, seriously the way it requires. Um, I'm going to keep my comments quite uh, loose and uh, speak a little bit about how uh, how I view Sri Lanka in a broader regional context. And, you know, traditionally there have been two uh, major prisms that we use when we're looking at, uh, to look at Sri Lanka. Uh, if, if you're sitting in Washington, obviously uh, it's, you know, through the prism of uh, a rising China in the Indo-Pacific, uh, the Belt and Road Project and other, you know, things that, 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 that David spoke about. Uh, if you're looking at it uh, from New Delhi, uh, the prism really seems to be more the you know Indian China rivalry across the region, and uh, in and in, in in a area that India has uh, long considered uh, to be its special sphere of influence. Um, what I think does not get looked at enough and uh, needs to be paid more attention to is uh, the larger debate about uh, democracy and democratic norms uh, in South Asia. Now, Jeff had mentioned that uh, Sri Lanka is the oldest democracy in South Asia, South Asia uh, which it indeed is, but in fact it is the oldest democracy in all of Asia. Uh, Sri Lanka got universal suffrage in 1931. And uh, when we speak about democracy, especially in Washington, you know, when we look at the sort of the spread, we tend to have, uh, we tend to view it largely through the prism of the Cold War and the world after the end of the Cold War. And you sort of, if you look at it in European terms, you sort of see, you know, first you see Greece, Portugal, and Spain finding their way towards democracy 
in the 1970s, and then you have this great wave of democratization that takes place uh, in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union after 1991. But the history of democracy in South Asia is actually quite different, and quite different from not just Europe, but also from other parts of Asia. And uh, to a large extent, this has to do with the British legacy, that the British in what is today the South, you know, the, the South Asian Association for Regional Cooperation, uh, obviously undivided India, which is today India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and then you have Sri Lanka. Uh, you had a British presence, and it's not a coincidence that it, South Asia's democratic trajectory um, has been better than it has been in many other parts of Asia, uh, and it has also been deeper. And so one of the things that you should at least keep in mind, or I'd like to keep in mind when I'm looking at Sri Lanka, is that in many ways its significance is even greater because in, it's, a, it's the canary in the mine. If you find that democratic institutions and democratic norms are coming under siege in Sri Lanka, very often what you're seeing is patterns that would be playing out or are likely to play out in other countries in the region as well. And so in that sense, I would say, you know, I'd start off by saying that the recent developments have actually been quite heartening. And Sri Lanka's recent history has also been, you know, heartening. Uh, despite the brutal civil war, uh, it maintained democracy. And many, many countries, when they are faced with those kinds of really dramatic internal challenges, are, are not able to uh, deal with them because there is a very large military aspect required, are not able to deal with them while maintaining demo democracy. And Sri Lanka, to its credit, uh, and I don't think it's given enough credit for this, uh, was uh, has pulled this off. This is not to say that the human rights concerns were not valid, but I'm just saying that these these concerns were, were the, the things took place in a democratic context. And as you've seen in many, many, many other established democracies, uh, in many ways you can look at the Rajapaksa story as this leader who, was, who rose to fulfill a very particular need. And once that was taken care of, uh, once the civil war had been won, uh, the Sri Lankan people decided that you know it, enough was enough and they didn't need him anymore. So I think that that's something that Sri Lanka doesn't get enough credit for. Uh, when you look at the rest of the region, I'm, I, I, I think that what you have really is you've seen, uh, formally speaking, in electoral terms, you've seen uh, democracy take hold even in some pretty unlikely places, right? In um, Afghanistan, Bhutan, which used to be a monarchy, uh, Nepal, which used to be which was rocked by an insurgency by uh, for for a long time. So, if you were to just look at the map of of South Asia today and compare it to say thirty years ago, when many of these countries were either monarchies or were under some form of military rule, uh, it's pretty clear that the needle has moved in the right direction. But if you kind of look at it a little bit more closely, and if you're uh, your frame of reference is not 25 or 30 years, but your frame of reference is, in fact, let's say, 5 to 10 years, I think there's, a, there's reason for us to be concerned about uh, many of the norms that underpin democracy. So I think what we've got to is we've, we've reached a point where 
Um, in many of these countries, we have some form of electoral democracy. We just had elections in Pakistan this year, and we're going to have elections in, uh, in, in Bangladesh by the end of the year. But what exactly that means, uh, I think, is, is certainly up for debate. And, and, and by that I mean, I'm, by democratic norms, I mean things like respect for media freedom, uh, respect for freedom of speech, respect for uh, the opposition, uh, respect for basic human rights. Olivia is going to speak about that more, and minority rights. And in a way, some of all of this gets kind of connected to uh, attitudes towards economic freedom, but that's kind of too much of a digression, and I won't go into, into that right now. And so let me wrap up by making a couple of, uh, you know, uh, a couple of points that uh, I think are uh, worth looking at as we, as we think of Sri Lanka in this regional democratic context. And the first is that the rise of China is, should worry us in more than just the obvious way. <laughs> uh, the obvious way, of course, has been that what we've seen uh, with the rise of China, you know, to borrow Raja Mohan's evocative phase, as China has risen as a second sun over South Asia over the last uh, 10 years or so. And the most obvious way, of course, has been that it has, you know, ended up becoming close to or being seen as being close to figures who have really not respected democratic norms, even though sometimes these figures have been democratically elected themselves. And here I would say in the region, again, this kind of comes back to the importance of Sri Lanka, because I would say Rajapaksa is really that classic figure you know, when, you, when you look around, because this is a person who was certainly popular. He was a democratically elected leader. But this is also a time when he was running the country that Journalists were disappearing in white, white vans. Uh, people were afraid to speak. There was a, a sense of uh, fear, certainly among intellectuals and opposition figures, um, that was quite unusual for a country of that history. Uh, similarly, uh, minority groups, both in terms of ethnic minorities, uh, primarily the Tamils, and uh, religious minorities, in this case primarily the, the Muslims, uh, felt that the, that he represented a kind of ethnic chauvinism that was that, that was uh, threatening, and so you have this sort of idea, and, and and you can take that same thing, and you can you can you can apply it in many ways. You can apply it to Yamin in the Maldives, uh, and, and and you can go across various countries, and invariably what you find is that. Uh, it's not as though that I mean it's not as though the Chinese will sort of actively go out to look for a strong man like figure, but it's just that the there there is absolutely no there's no pushback of any kind and there's a comfort level uh, with these figures right and it comes back to the you know the old old during during the Cold War uh, what what Gene Kirkpatrick said that there's a there's a difference between I mean the U S also backed dictators as sort of the Soviet Union. But there's always, there was always a difference, and I would, I would argue that that difference uh, is, holds even today, which is that though the U.S. may be willing to do business with some pretty unsavory characters, the idea of human rights never fully goes away. There will always be people in Washington who care if you kill a journalist. 
maybe not the right people and maybe not enough people, but there will always be people and there will be institutions and there will be members of Congress and there will be human rights groups and there will be journalists uh, who care about that sort of thing. And therefore, when you're engaging with the U.S. as your major partner, uh, the idea of human rights and minority rights and democratic norms is never completely off the table. Whereas when you're engaging with a country like China, uh, it, is, it, it simply doesn't matter. It doesn't, it, it doesn't rise at all. So you've had the fact that you know you have leaders who are able to find sustenance in more ways than one uh, from the rise of China and its importance in South Asia. But you also have this, you know, the, the issue of uh, China as a model. And I think this is the part that gets, uh, it, uh, that, that doesn't get paid enough attention to. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll speak a little bit about this before wrapping up. And, you know, if you go back and you look at the, you know, the history of these countries, um, particularly the parts of South Asia that were under British rule. Now, the leaders, the, in, the, the independence leaders in these countries, they wanted democracy. But they wanted democracy for two reasons. Uh, the first, of course, is that many of them had been exposed to Britain through education or otherwise, and they wanted to, their people to, you know, to enjoy the same, uh, the same rights and political freedoms that they had seen and experienced uh, in, 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 in that country. But at the time, uh, Britain was also the most advanced country in many other ways. And I think that has been true also of the United States. So for uh, if you're from a developing country, democracy has always signaled two things together. One, of course, is individual freedom, which we all know. But it has also signaled excellence in all other domains. The best cities were in the West. The best infrastructure was in the West. When you came to a Western airport, it was dramatically different from the kind of airport you had back at home. Uh, and the most cutting science and technology was in the West. The, the tech firms that you were familiar with were in the West. And I think what we're seeing now in China in a very fundamental way is something that threatens what has been an essential truth for as long as we can remember because you've had democratic Western capitalist countries that have been the most successful societies on the planet. And the Chinese are threatening this in a way in which the Soviets never could. Uh, the Soviet story was that, look, this was a backward agrarian peasant society, and with five-year plans, we managed to build some, uh, some uh, great military power come and study at Patris Lumumba University. Um, but what the Chinese have done is, in fact, much more, much more sophisticated. Uh, many of you would have seen the story in The Economist recently where, you know, Chinese companies, Chinese, you know, when you look at science and technology and universities, essentially it's, it's, it's between the top Chinese universities and MIT and Caltech and so on, right? This is a, it's, it's, it's a two-country race. And by some measures, some of the top Chinese universities have even sort of gone ahead. Uh, similarly, when you look at the world's top 20 tech firms, uh, 
all of them are either American or Chinese. I think the last list I looked at was 11 American firms and, 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 and nine Chinese. And, you know, Walter's in the audience, and we both have a, you know, interest in Indonesia. And I was struck by, I was in Indonesia a couple of years ago, and I was, uh, had dinner with a producer from a, a, a news channel. And this is a fairly sophisticated, well-traveled person from Jakarta, which is a major city, right? It's the capital, it's the political, economic, and cultural capital of a major Asian country. And this person had gone on a visit, had been taken by the Chinese uh, on a visit. And I can't remember the name of the city, but it was, you know, the sixth or seventh city. I mean, it wasn't like that this person had been taken to Beijing or Shanghai, right? They'd been taken to some city that was sort of, uh, at least to me, not, some, not, not a city that I, 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 that I was familiar with, much less not, not had visited, and had come back absolutely blown away and just blown away by the level of development. And you can argue that these things are, you know, superficial, and, and, but in the end, I think they really do make an impact and that the, 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 the Chinese have used this in a way that is uh, very uh, telling. And I think what we're going to see, bringing these things back, back together, if you bring back the sort of, you know, the, the fact that you have these political leaders who are increasingly turning towards China, and the fact that they now have a model that they can sell as a model of excellence, uh, those two together, I think, become extremely potent. So that leads me to my final point, which is that what does that, what does that mean for uh, the, 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 the world's democracies? And I would say it, it kind of underlines the importance of the kind of work that uh, David and IRI and others are, are doing. Because in many ways, the, it, it's really going to be about strengthening uh, democratic norms. Because, on a many, because that's what the Chinese have no expertise in. And I believe that even though people may want all of the other fruits of development that the Chinese model seems to represent, I think it's important to make the point that, first of all, if you that first of all, that is not replicable in most societies, and second, that pursuing it uh, would come at a terrible cost in terms of <coughs> personal freedoms and individual rights and so on. And I think that that really is going to be you know beyond I mean that you know beyond the 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 geopolitics of it and. Belt and Road and, and Indo-Pacific and U.S.-China and India-China and all the rest of it. I think in many ways the heart of this debate is going to be about what, how do these societies in, in South Asia organize themselves and the most important country to look at as, a sort of, as the kind of proverbial canary in the mine uh, is going to be Sri Lanka. And I want to end on an upbeat, be, upbeat note by saying that uh, the recent events in Sri Lanka have in fact been quite heartening. You have had, you have a Supreme Court that has essentially shown that it is independent of the executive, and that you've had politicians in the, in the from the from the UNP who have stood behind a prime minister who was uh, dismissed uh, un, unfairly, and it seems that even though uh, Mr. Rajapaksa is undoubtedly a popular figure, I was in Sri Lanka this in, in March 
just around the time when he was sweeping these local elections. And he's a, he's a popular figure, and I think it's certainly uh, uh, we have to acknowledge that the, that the brand of nationalism that he represents does have a lot of resonance with, with many people. Um, but despite that, despite that, uh, the norms have held, the institutions have held, and I think that that's uh, certainly uh, something heartening when we look at the country. Thank you. Awesome. Well, Sadnan ended on a, a high note. I think, uh, as human rights usually are, I'm going to end on a low note. Um, so as I was preparing for this speech, I came across a really interesting article in Foreign Policy, and it made a comparison between the political transformation in Sri Lanka and the political transition going on in Burma. And one of the main arguments or the main takeaways from this article was that the U.S. in particular, the foreign policy establishment and the government, had been too eager to laud a change in leadership as a fundamental political transformation. In other words, that the election of somebody new, whether it was Aung San Suu Kyi or Sirisena, meant that we were going to be restarting an entire process that would lead to a fundamental change in the country. And as you heard from Sadnan, of course, there are some really notable areas where Sri Lanka has, has matured and has improved. But I wanted to push some of those um, connections between the experience in Burma and Sri Lanka, then look at some of the false hopes um, that resulted during Sarasena's tenure, and then transition into what do we do in the event of Rajapaksa being either reelected or the Supreme Court ruling completely uh, ignored. So in Burma, uh, you had the sort of surprise election of Aung San Suu Kyi, and you know summarily following that, you now have a UN report saying that war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide have taken place there. Seven hundred and fifty thousand individuals displaced, ten thousand people, and that's a conservative estimate that have likely died. Um, and all of this happened on the heels of the Obama administration lifting sanctions against Burma. And now what you have is a political transformation that, and a political reform process that's largely stalled, and you have little political will to hold perpetrators accountable for what took place. And then when we look at Sri Lanka, uh, the election of Sirisena was, to some extent, a surprise. And after um, Sirisena was elected, there was increased cooperation with the UN, especially after the Office of the High Commissioner released reports on what happened under the LTTE and some of the government authorities. Um, and an, an actually stated desire to hold perpetrators accountable. But the reality is that that process itself stalled under Sirisena. There was little progress moved toward holding those perpetrators accountable. And I'll go into those details a little bit more um, in my next point. But obviously under Rajapaksa, you had unbelievable human rights abuses. Tens of thousands of people killed. We don't actually know the exact amount according to various UN reports. Um, you had more than 15,000 people displaced. Um, you had journalists being targeted so much so that at one point Sri Lanka had, the, I think, the highest number of journalists in, imprisoned uh, and, and being targeted and also was one of the most dangerous places for aid and humanitarian workers to go to. 
Um, but nonetheless, when Sirisena was elected, the hopes were really high for reconciliation, uh, especially because he was more cooperative with the UN process. But as time went on, it became, I think, clear that a lot of the cooperation was in word only and not really coming through much in terms of deed. Uh, for example, Sirisena had committed to setting up four separate uh, uh, transitional justice mechanisms uh, in Sri Lanka. One was the Special Court for Alleged War Crimes. The second was a repatriation tribunal. The third was an office of missing persons to deal with those who had been forcibly disappeared. And the fourth was to set up some sort of truth and reconciliation commission. Out of those four transitional justice mechanisms, only one was set up. That was the office of missing persons. And even that has made limited progress. Uh, going forward. But I, I do want to give credit, as Sadhanan uh, rightly did, that there was a noticeably freer press um, during this time period. And I think you've continued to see that going forward. And you've certainly seen less violence and a much better solid political process nonetheless. Um, but even still, the State Department Human Rights Report says that at least uh, 5,000 people are currently disappeared, um, in large part for criticism of the government. And that the torture that you saw um, underneath the previous government actually is continuing to persist. So then the question really is, if Rajapaksa returns, um, sort of what happens? And that, like as I said to start, is whether or not they ignore the Supreme Court decision or uh, if Rajapaksa is in fact reelected in the next election cycle. I think that this would be obviously a really significant move in terms of human rights issues. I don't think you would see any of the promises that were made before the UN fulfilled. Um, I think you would continue to see the stalling of a process. I think it's possible that those UN commitments could be entirely rolled back. And I think that one of the things we would want to look for in particular is at that freedom of the press area, since that was an area that was really significantly and severely restricted under Rajapaksa previously. And I think there's also some concern that uh, human rights activists would be cracked down on, which was a key trait that we saw under his leadership. I think another trend that we could see, um, and this has been mentioned by everyone, uh, is the potential for leaning even more on China. Although Sirisena has been pretty warm in terms of his relationship with China, I think you would see an even greater relationship with China. And one of the things that concerns me perhaps the most is obviously the types of investment that China engages in, but not only just the types of investment, but the fact that when China does invest in various countries, it's exporting its valueless form of investment where it's not requiring certain um, you know, adherences to human rights and, and freedoms that are usually respected. And beyond that, there's been concern in other areas where China has been investing that they might be exporting their surveillance technologies similar to how they've been using it in the case of Xinjiang. And we all know what's going on there, serious, severe human rights abuses. Um, and I think if that's combined with both the Sirisena government and the Rajapaksa's government's tendency toward enforced disappearances, this could be even more concerning and could lead to increased enforced disappearances in a way that we should be really keeping our eye out for. 
Another trend I think we could potentially see is obviously the increase in human rights abuses and the targeting of minorities in the country. And I think this is where it would be really important in particular for places like the International Religious Freedom Office, which annually releases their International Religious Freedom uh, Report to keep a close eye on those communities. I wanted to return really quickly just to the beginning, which is that, you know, I think that there are lessons that are being learned currently in Burma that actually could have some insight into what's going on in Sri Lanka. Um, one thing that the U.S. should definitely do is continue to monitor the human rights situation there. Um, two, I think it should continue to encourage the necessary reforms be made, especially the ones recommended by the UN, but also potentially some of those included in the uh, lessons learned um, and reconciliation efforts before. And I think that this is the one thing, if I can end on this note, that I think is really important, not just for Sri Lanka or for Burma, but for all of our analysis when we look at human rights issues in Asia. And that's that when we think about democracy advocates or those who would preserve democracy or seek democracy in their own country, we often conflate democracy with a lot of the other human rights issues that often go hand in hand here in the U.S. So, you know, protection of life, protection of a free press, other things that typically we would associate with democracy. But I think when you look all throughout Asia, you see many leaders who are in favor of democratic reform in their own country but don't care very much for human rights abuses in general. One example I would give uh, would be Moon Jae-in in South Korea. Even though he was a democracy advocate there, he doesn't care very much for human rights abuses in North Korea or within his own country. And you see this also in Burma, where Aung San Suu Kyi was really lauded as a human rights advocate, but the reality was she was really all for promoting democratic reform in her own country, and that didn't automatically mean concern and care for the Rohingya. And I think the same could possibly be true in Sri Lanka. And so it's something to keep in mind as we move forward with future policy. With that, I'll conclude. Thank you, Olivia, David, uh, Saad. Uh, really informative discussion so far. I'm going to conclude on just a few points, and I <coughs> certainly want to open up the floor to the audience and get a few questions in. Um, a, a few points to add some context to the Belt and Road, China, debt trap, diplomacy, uh, Sri Lanka as a model test case that I think um, we discuss it a lot, but we don't dive into the details about why we're concerned or what exactly is going on. So let me just add a little context here. First, let's, let's just look at the economic numbers. As, as David said, we think uh, the amount of loans assumed from China, the amount of debt owed to China now is somewhere between three and eight billion dollars. You know, that seems relatively modest from a from an American's perspective. Um, it may be substantially more than that. There are some estimates that suggest that while he was in power, Rajapaksa did a lot of off the books borrowing from Chinese firms and the Chinese government through state-owned enterprises and was able to keep that off the government uh, debt uh, to the tune of as much as $9.5 billion. So the actual amount of money owed to China and Chinese SOEs may be twice as much as, as our regular estimates. But still, that doesn't seem to be particularly alarming on the surface. It's just that Sri Lanka's economic position, this is a $93 billion economy. So these are numbers 
somewhat hard to believe at times, put out by the Sri Lankan finance ministry. This is a $93 billion economy that gets about $15 billion a year in government revenues, borrows about an additional $2.5 billion a year as of late, so working with about $17.5 billion government budget. But total debt payments, by their own figures, are up to $12 billion a year. And by their count, that's $3 billion in foreign loans, $5.5 billion in interest payments, and it's assumed that the rest is domestic debt, payments on domestic debt. Part of this is because Sri Lanka borrowed a lot of money from international and Western financial institutions many years ago, and, and the terms of those debts are coming due. But I think the point is that Sri Lanka was in a relatively challenging debt environment before several billion dollars more came in. And, and the problem is that they came in for projects that were economically unviable, that weren't likely to generate enough revenue to pay for themselves. So, you know, the thing about the Hambantota port deal, this was, there were feasibility studies conducted for this port deal in 2001. This had been on the mind of the Rajapaksas for a while. And each study essentially said, this is a bad idea. This is not a great location for a port. Colombo already can handle most of the traffic that we need. We just don't <coughs> see this making a lot of economic sense. He, of course, revived the idea when he came to power in 2005 and wanted the Indians or the West, somebody in the West, to take up this investment. And they said no, because it wasn't economically viable. So they went to the Chinese, and the Chinese initially, as Dave said, offered relatively reasonable terms on these loans. The problem is that once uh, these projects were being built and weren't generating revenue and you needed to go back to China for more loans, now the terms became more stringent financially. And when you had to go back again, now the terms weren't financial, they were equity stakes. We want to have control over the container terminals and the ports, and we want a 99-year lease. And it's, 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 again, the non-financial aspects of this lending and these debt traps that, that most concern me and the way that China has sort of both blurred the line between economics and geostrategy but also become so um, involved in the domestic politics of these other countries. And just, you know, from, from a New York Times report, this is during the, the last 2015 election. Large payments from the Chinese Hambantota Port Development Project Fund flowed directly to campaign aides and activities for Mr. Rajapaksa. That includes over $3 million for campaign t-shirts, volunteers, and to pay off influential Buddhist monks. Meanwhile, China's ambassador broke with diplomatic norms and lobbied voters, even caddies at Colombo's premier golf course, to support Mr. Rajapaksa over the opposition, which was threatening to tear up economic agreements with the Chinese government. Um, the Sri Lankan government has itself accused Chinese state-owned enterprises of illegally channeling money to their preferred candidates. That, that is not okay. That is not um, sort of an acceptable practice. Uh, there have been the secretive terms in these deals. These are deals negotiated in secret that we later learn handed over to China land at the Colombo Port Project, the Hambantota Port Project, on a freehold basis. 
Sri Lanka's own government has said under these terms, the airspace over Chinese-held areas would be controlled by China. Now, when the Sirisena government came in, they renegotiated these contracts. They found out what was in them, first of all, because these were secret deals. And then they renegotiated them and removed some of these provisions. Um, But the fact that they were even inserted in there in the first place, and when they were renegotiating them, Ten times the Sri Lankan government rejected proposals by China. China said, okay, you want to renegotiate? How about this? No. That involves sovereignty-violating provisions. Okay, we'll rewrite it. How about this one? No. Still unacceptable. Ten times trying to insert provisions that most countries would find unacceptable. By my own reading, the deal that was made to manage the Hambantota port now uses some very uh, creative mathematics to make it look as if Sri Lankan majority-owned entities control security and operations at the port. However, that does not appear to be the case. Again, using some creative math, it appears that Chinese-owned jointly-held entities will be managing, will have a majority stake in security and operations of the Hambantota port. And we were, we were in Colombo and we were in Sri Lanka. I presented these numbers to senior Sri Lankan officials and said, you know, this is just what I'm seeing. Does this track with what you know? And they said, that could entirely be true. We haven't seen the terms of the deal either. Um, we really don't know what's going on there. Uh, this, is what's, this is what's troubling. Um, the fact that after China begins operating a terminal at the Colombo port, a Chinese submarine surfaces there for the first time ever. Okay, a port call by a Chinese submarine isn't necessarily a cause for major suspicion, but it goes to the Chinese-operated terminal rather than the terminal that used for where other foreign military uh, ships visit. And it comes while the Japanese prime minister is in the country. And the second request for a Chinese submarine visit was to be three or four days after Prime Minister Modi. The Indian Prime Minister had visited the country for the first time in 28 years. There always seems to be a geopolitical connection to this activity that we find concerning. Um, And and there's many more examples, but I I won't go on there. I'd much rather open up the floor to any any questions we have from the audience. Walter. We can hear you. Well, there's actually a button that you have to push here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I really like the uh, focus on the institutions in Sri Lanka as regards BRI in particular, um, because it, it seems to me there's not enough focus on that when we're talking about um, the Chinese effort because no one's forcing the Sri Lankans to take the money. No one's forcing the Malaysians to take the money. Africans take the money. They're taking the money under these poor terms. Uh, So my question is, given that that is true and given that the institutions in Sri Lanka are relatively strong, (coughs) why did they fail in this case? And what does that say about the future? So uh, Sirisena comes in, he sets a lot of things straight. Um, what happens the next time around? Is there enough, is it that there's not 
depth of support for these institutions or understanding of the institutions? Why didn't they work? Why didn't they prevent this kind of, uh, these kind of deals to go through? And are they strong enough and is there enough depth of support for the institutions that in the long run they'll prevent it from happening again? take a sort of stab at that, and I'd love, love to hear David's views too. Um, you know, this is one of the things where, I mean, it's, people don't state these, but this is what sort of comes up in private conversations, in, and is that um, the Chinese have figured out something that is true of all democratic politics, which is that politicians need funds. I mean, that's the kind of you know that's that's the that's the blunt answer, and in country after country, they are able to offer projects that may not make sense if you're looking at it strictly from the point of view of the national interest, but if you kind of factor in the personal interest of the decision maker um, and their ability to essentially fund their campaigns, these things can end up looking extremely attractive, right? And so it becomes a question of to what degree do you have institutions in your country that can, you, you could have institutions that function at one level. So for example, an independent judiciary or, um, uh, or, or an independent media that is free to criticize the uh, head of government, but institutions that function at another level that are able, that are you know that strong. I mean, we're, I mean, which country has those? Right. I mean, this is not just a, forget the developing world. Right. You're seeing this, you're seeing this in Europe. I mean, you're seeing this here. Right. But the, this the 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 ability to implicate themselves in the in in politics in that way um, requires a certain a, a different kind of institutional fortitude. And I'm not sure if. Um, how many places have that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I, I don't have much to add, certainly not on the Sri Lanka domestic institutions piece, but I think what Saad said is exactly right. I mean, China goes in and they understand, um, you know, it used to be um, that China certainly had a preference for dealing with countries where there's, you know, an autocrat, um, and it's, it's it, to some degree, that's, that's still true. But they've learned how to operate better in democratic societies, how to throw money around, how to hedge their bets, um, and how to make sure that if, um, if they're going in deep um, in terms of strategic interests in a country that um, ultimately um, they'll play the long game and they won't find that they're completely out of luck if that person gets kicked out of office. Um, uh, I think, you know, as Saad said, there's, there's an understanding that a lot of these politicians, uh, even in, in countries with decent institutions, their, their, you know, their interests are very short term, and if you can stand up there in front of um, the masses who don't necessarily have a deep understanding of the economics behind these deals that China is concluding with uh, with their leaders, um, that you have, you know, this big bridge or these gigantic um, buildings brought to you by China, and uh, oh, isn't it great that um, that our leader was able to bring these jobs um, and able to. Um, to bolster economic growth in this fashion. Um, you know, I was struck by the fact that, I mean, you know, someone who didn't know Sri Lanka well uh, several years ago and then traveled there and tried to learn more about what China was doing there, it was striking to me just to see the fact that, you know, 
the fact that despite what Rajapaksa had done uh, to the country's finances through these deals with China, that he was still so massively popular. Um, and I mean, that shouldn't be surprising, certainly shouldn't be surprising in this day of populism. Um, but I think, um, you know, the Chinese understand that, that ultimately, um, if they play the information piece right, and if they um, have the right friends in the right places, um, that, that they can get around um, and, and make gains in countries that even have fairly decent democratic institutions. And that goes to the point that Saad was making too, which is, you know, the importance of the work where you, you're bolstering and engaging with journalists and media and investigative, you know, people who are really going to dig into this um, to protect their own countries, right? Not just necessarily look at what China's doing, but look at what their own officials are doing and expose it for what it is, because that's really at the root of all of this. Let me, sorry, let me just follow up on that briefly. It's, it, it still sounds like we're putting all of the onus on the Chinese. <laughs> and, and granted, the Chinese deserve it because they've taken this, you know, sort of a merciless approach to these sorts of things. But it's not, um, you know, it's sort of relieves the democracies like Sri Lanka of their responsibility in this case, because the idea is, well, the Chinese are picking on these poor democracies that can't otherwise control themselves. So, so the question is, so what is wrong with democratic accountability in Sri Lanka? Where were the demands for transparency when the deals were going on? Uh, where was the investigative journalism there? Where was the reaction from the public? Is it just a case, and it may be a case in a lot of democracies, including the United States, that people just don't understand or appreciate these institutions the way they should, and they actually prefer to have the investment and the opportunity than they do to uphold their own their own democratic norms? Yeah, I mean, I'll let Jeff cover the Sri Lanka part, but I mean, I'll just say I, I'm not trying to let the countries off the hook, but because I look at China, I tend to hear the argument that, well, it, uh, that it isn't China's fault, especially you hear that when it relates to China and Africa a lot, uh, because these countries are willingly taking this on. Um, I think that that lets China off the hook. I mean, you talk to, um, you know, Chinese academics who are honest with you and they'll say, you know, we don't see a problem with opacity in the way that we do these deals. If we're behind a closed door with a leader, regardless of how that leader got into power, and that leader says yes to whatever terms we're offering, then then we did our, you know, we did what we need to do and we, we don't feel like we did anything wrong. So, I mean, that's just goes to the point that China is, it's kind of a permissive environment. But then, yes, there's a lot of responsibility that, that lies at the feet of the host government. I, I think you are, in some ways answered the question. It, it is that the transparency aspect is, was the key failure, in my opinion, in the Sri Lankan context, right? The other democratic uh, institutions worked. There was an election. There was a backlash against Rajapaksa. Someone new came into office. The terms were renegotiated. The court has now upheld decisions against China's favored candidates. So in a sense, those institutions held. What failed was was the transparency. I think if the Sri Lankan public interest groups were aware of the terms of the, some of the terms of these deals at the beginning, there would have been a bigger backlash. Um, but they weren't. But we also have to remember this was at a time where, you know, in the late 2000s when a lot of these deals were signed was during or immediately after the Civil War when there was a fairly anti-democratic environment uh, in Sri Lanka, where journalists were being picked up in white vans, where opposing the Rajapaksas or digging into the deals that they were signing with the Chinese wasn't particularly good for your health. 
Um, so, you know, there were unique conditions here, which I think prevented the type of transparency we would hope for in a in a in a strong and stable democracy. I think if anything failed, that's that's where it failed. And checks and balances from other branches of government that could have applied greater scrutiny to these deals. But if you ask me, that that that's the. That's the weak link. Part of me wonders, though, too, if it has something to do with U.S. absence from Asia. I mean, even under the Obama administration, you know, the stated Asia pivot, the only economic aspect of it was the TPP. And so when TPP was gone, there was a question about how the U.S. was going to be engaging in Asia apart from – uh, you know, businesses, of course, who are engaged there. And so I think the question now for the Trump administration is – how and in what ways is the Indo-Pacific strategy going to sort of counter, not compete with Chinese investment because we can't compete on a like tit-for-tat basis, but how are we going to demonstrate that a, a country that is investing with values in mind, wanting to preserve human rights and otherwise, is actually more beneficial for these countries in the long-term investment than turning to China for these short-term in, like immediate gratifying uh, forms of investment like you did in Sri Lanka with the Hermantura port. Actually, this, this leads me to a, a thought and a question I want to pose to you all that relates to the, the human <laughs> rights question and the China question. When I was reviewing the terms of, of Rajapaksa's initial outreach to China during the, the civil war with the Tigers, it struck me it serves as a test case of the potential limitations of the U.S. using human rights as a tool of foreign policy, or at least the, the degree to which it's ch- China has changed the landscape. There was a time in the late 1990s where we might have been able to say, if you don't do X, you're cut off, and the type of pressure that would apply to a country was decisive. We have a case like Sri Lanka in the late 2000s, or for very good reasons, the United States curtailed aid to Rajapaksa in the Civil War, but it ended up producing a relationship with China that um, arguably made things worse or certainly could have made things worse, could have insulate, better insulated him from pressure from the international and human rights community. So in what ways has, has China's growth as an economic power and as an economic power that doesn't care about human rights, shaped or constrained or changed our ability to use human rights as a as a mechanism or as a point of leverage or to make it prominent and front and center. Um, I feel like we have this uh, constant tension between national interest and moral responsibility. And I wonder if how Sri Lanka has has sort of brought this tension out in, into the open. Um, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, this is a fundamental question. Yeah. It has been for a long time, but I think especially with, with the rise of China and the fact that unlike the Soviet Union, as Saad said, it was a different situation. You have a China that can shower countries with, with money. And, um, you know, in, in one respect, you know, a lot of people who are kind of trending in an illiberal direction who might have otherwise at least paid some lip service to the uh, demands of Western countries to look like they're, they're on the right democratic path, they, they don't have to do that anymore, right? I mean, the Tanzanian president just came out a couple, like a week or two ago and said, you know, and he's under pressure from, from the EU and from the West for, for the terrible things that are happening in that country. And he said, well, you know, I like, I like doing business with China. They give you the money and then they don't ask any more questions. <laughs> um, and, but I think, you know, 
to your specific question, in a lot of countries in Asia, I think uh, people are rightly thinking about um, when we talk about U.S. policy, you know, does it make sense to kind of try to say, um, you know, to, to make it a, a us or them kind of question or not an us or them, but a, you, you do the right things or you're not going to get what you need to get. And we see that in Thailand. We've seen that in Cambodia. Um, we've seen that in a lot of countries where it says, well, you know, that doesn't work anymore because they'll say, okay, well, we'll just slide more in the direction that we were already heading um, towards autocracy and we'll get more in bed with China. So I think it, I mean, I think it, it, it is a fair point to say that maybe um, going forward, it's more effective to be doing all this work that we've been talking about in a country where you're trying to bolster governance, you're trying to give these countries um, the kind of tools that they need to bolster their resilience um, against uh, the kind of uh, authoritarian influence you get from China, um, and also to, to kind of, you know, ensure that their institutions are strong, but to not overlay that with a, you know, strong public rhetoric pitch that kind of puts the country in a position where, um, you know, we're, we're kind of making the leaders look bad, and they decide, well, you know, the hell with us. Let's just go and, go and deal with China because they don't give us this trouble. It's made our job hard. Yeah, it's made our job much harder. One quick point. I think that, you know, when I was listening to, you know, Olivia's remarks, I think one of, one of the things that um, is quite striking across the region is that uh, a lot of these uh, uh, developments are taking place against a backdrop of anxiety about changing ethnic or religious demographics. And I think that is something that, you know, those of us who live in, in societies which are organized around individuals and the idea of, you know, and individual rights, we don't get, right? I'm not justifying what uh, anything that happened in Myanmar. It's atrocious and I've written about it. Um, but at some level, I think we are not even able to really put ourselves in the shoes of some Burmese general. Uh, similarly, we, we, we are not, we're not good at understanding what's happening with Sinhalese nationalism or even Hindu nationalism in India. And with a lot of these democratic values, it comes down to, you know, how deep are the roots? And I'll give you an example. There was a, there's a defense analyst, a friend of some of ours in India, who just spent more than 40 days in jail in the state of Orissa because he made some videos where he was clearly joking, but anyway, he made fun of a, a revered local temple. Ended up in jail for 40 days, now he's out. And, you know, on the one hand, you have a lot of these, you know, outraged editorials and so on, but if you were to, in fact, uh, if you have held a poll in that state and said, well, here's a person who said this, should he be in jail or should he be free? I bet you most people would say, of course he should be in jail. So, you know, we're dealing with the fact that a lot of these norms are, are, are they're, not, they're, they're not as deep-rooted as we would like. And that paradoxically then, the deepening of democracy in these societies is leading to these norms being weakened in some ways simply because people may not care about them as much as we. And I think that in, in Sri Lanka, that's particularly striking because the way we think and we speak about human rights issues in Sri Lanka uh, is very often um, we, we, we emphasize the idea of some kind of justice 
for what took place during the Civil War. Right? That's that's the that's the dominant theme. If you kind of you know read the uh, ICG reports, the Human Rights Watch reports, and so on. But uh, very often, for the people on the ground, the thing that matters more may be, well, what? How is my life going to be affected in the days ahead? Which is why it's not a coincidence that the missing persons issue becomes something that rises. And I think that's kind of you know probably. I mean, it's 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 it's, it's something about how. It's how do we think about these things? Are there aspects of our conversation about human rights, our conversation about freedom of speech, our conversation about these things? Are there aspects of these that can be tailored in ways that kind of resonate more with these populations? Because simply saying that, look, this is how we look at it, whether it's the Rohingya or whether it's something else, and you should look at it ex the same way, um, doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, my answer would be, and this doesn't just relate to Sri Lanka or just Asia, um, really to overarching U.S. human rights policy, is that it is so divorced from our own national interests or national security concerns that it often gets left by the wayside, and it it's not a problem until it is a problem. And I think that, like, the example, classic example with this would be Burma, where we did lift sanctions prematurely just because there was a transition in leadership. And the assumption and the way that we had actually written the sanctions made that possible. And so I think we have to start thinking like these miscalculations are happening on human rights related issues, whether it's democracy or, or international religious freedom or trafficking. And these sorts of mistakes are being made over and over and over again. And we keep saying like, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a human rights issue. It doesn't relate to our national security issues. But I mean, the reality is, is that's what everyone is having to talk about today in Burma is the Rohingya issue. And now in Sri Lanka, you have this, you know, potential transformation or transition of power taking place. And now everyone has to go back and revisit the human rights issues that we said didn't relate to our national security concerns or didn't relate to how we were crafting our foreign policy. So maybe it's time to start saying, how can we integrate these into broader discussions so that these problems just don't keep snowballing over and over again? And I think, you know, as I started off with, the, I think the U.S. has to be more cautious in, in sort of rubber stamping, this is a success, this is a fundamental transformation in a knee-jerk fashion and really take more time to think through this. But in order to attract, I think, countries in Asia, I mean, the reality is countries in Asia are going to engage with both the U.S. and China. It doesn't matter. Like, we can't say that, you know, somehow we're going to woo them to our side or it's just going to be all China. I just don't think that's the political or economic reality that we're in today. But one thing that the U.S. has that China does not have is our enduring alliance structure and how we have been pretty faithful to those alliances in Asia. That's not something that China can point to. It doesn't have a hub-and-spokes model of dependency and cooperation, symbiotic um, work together. And I think that that in and of itself could be used as a carrot. Like, take U.S. investment because it has deeper roots and longer-term engagement. It's going to be strategic and better in the long-term for Asian security in general. Yeah, and I would just add, I think, you know, to your point about what, where <coughs> American 
strength lies, it also lies in the fact that we have the model of our system and democracy and all that, right? I mean, I think there's not a choice that has to be made between telling countries, if you don't do what we want to see on human rights, you're going to get sanctioned, um, which sometimes is, the, is the, you know, the right cause. I think it's case by case. You need to look at, you know, is this going to get us to where we want to get with this country and not only in terms of national security interests, but in terms of what we want to see in that country, right? Yeah. Um, but I think you need to you need to be aware of um, you know always kind of being a beacon of freedom and saying you know kind of um, emboldening and um, empowering the people in these countries who want to uh, do the right things without necessarily in every case um, taking the kind of harsh approach that might ultimately be uh, the wrong choice for our national security interests. Question here at the front. Oh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, Heritage Foundation. A uh, couple questions. Uh, you mentioned it's a large number of uh, people being persecuted. Uh, I, I wonder if that is uh, a religious conflict or, or persecution. Uh, number two, it, it, it just come to me I'm a Japan native, U.S. citizen. Uh, second question is, what, what kind of uh, India-Sri Lanka relations? Uh, I need to get into that. Uh, or what can India do for Sri Lanka? Uh, now, somebody said Japan suspended some foreign aids. Twenty billion or whatever that was. Uh, it, what's the reason for suspending it? I mean, part of it is is Japan's fault. I mean, not directly, but I, I get critical of Japan sometimes. I have right to do so. <laughs> yes, you I'm do. a Japan native. Okay, so it, it's a balance of power. China did it. They took initiative and they did it. What's Japan doing? What's India doing? Nothing? That's a very good question. Yeah. Um, I'll let Saad uh, speak to the India question. Um, I, you know, I, I think India has, uh, well, on the, on the BRI part, I think India has, uh, it's tried to compete with its own projects. But I think if we're completely, you know, brutally frank, I think we're, we're living in a period today where virtually nobody is able to offer what China can offer, uh, both in terms, not just in terms of sums, but more importantly, in terms of uh, execution and speed of turning these things around, right? And, you know, put yourself in the shoes of a politician, and you have a five-year cycle, uh, if, if you're lucky and crazy things don't happen in the middle. Um, and, you know, you, you, you're, you win an election and then you want to be able to go back to your voters in five years and, you know, the Chinese ambassador shows up and says that, hey, do you know, do you want, you want this great new port and, these, and, this, and this bridge and, and, and this new sports stadium? And guess what? It's all going to, you know, be there. It'll all be there in the next three years. And, you know, you, know, you, you might do welfare yourself on the side, but let's be, let's, that's a separate issue. Um, and India can't offer that. Uh, 
the U.S. can't, right? So I was talking to a very senior Sri Lankan politician. I won't take names because it was a private conversation. And, you know, we had this about a U.S. project that, you know, went on for years and years and years. The negotiation went on for years and years and years. And then finally they kind of get to a point where, okay, we're ready to sign this. It's not for a huge amount of money. And then there was some objection that had to do with traffic lights. I mean, it was just some obscure little wrinkle, some little detail. And you don't have that, you know, so that, that, that the execution part that China brings to this. So my view has been that uh, obviously these countries should continue to try to both have their own projects and cooperate. Japan and India are cooperating. Japan, India, and the U.S. I think that should go on, but we should not kid ourselves into thinking that we have the systems and processes that are actually going to be competitive. So I think where the democratic countries are competitive is in the stuff China can't do. And what India ought to do and hasn't done is India should should simply and uncon unconditionally and unilaterally, uh, first of all, uh, liberalize trade. And it should just simply be that, okay, we're not looking, it should, it should be one, ideally it should be two-way because trade is good for everybody, but even if it's one way, it should be unilateral. And I think more than that, India should also, uh, and not just with Sri Lanka, but with all its neighbors, uh, it should have, uh, it should open up its educational institutions. It should make it really easy for people to study or work should they choose to in India. I think that would be the one thing because of you know linguistic and other cultural ties um, where uh, India could, could, could do something that uh, China is not able to do. Of course, there are all kinds of domestic reasons why that hasn't happened, but I think that's, that's one key. And the second thing is that, you know, I think India should, you know, recognize that it's often been been overbearing in the region, and it's seen as over, it's been seen as overbearing, and so it maybe you know may just a little work a little bit on the in the charm department. And on the second question, I think that there are frequently religious or ethnic aspects to, you know, various crises. And I think this is one of the reasons why we should always have a strong international religious freedom uh, department at state that really does focus on the religious aspects of conflict. And they release a report every year highlighting the types of religious persecution that are taking place. Um, one interesting anecdote from someone who I, I had spoken to who worked in the State Department um, and also uh, folks who have worked at USAID is that, you know, as Americans, we often take a very secular approach to how we do aid or how we do foreign policy. And we omit religion from the picture, thinking that this will be a more effective way of doing policy because it'll look unbiased, because that's how it is in American society. But in reality, in a lot of parts of Asia and a lot of parts of the world, religion is so integral to the way that they function on a day-to-day -day basis that they're actually more inherently suspicious of a secular organization dispensing aid or or doing a U.S. government program than they are if there was a religious group that was funded to do reconciliation efforts or to actually dispense with aid. So I think that is something that's worth keeping in mind in the Sri Lankan context, but also elsewhere in Asia. I think it often depends on the religion, though. Yeah. 
right? So, yeah, so if it's like a, you know, Japanese Buddhist group, then maybe they think that's great. But, you know, if it's something, something else, they yeah. may actually, <laughs> may actually have not have that desired effect. Yeah. <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? We certainly covered quite a bit of ground today. Um, it's not a requirement. You won't be penalized. Um, well, I, I'm very happy with, with how this turned out. I'm very happy with any effort, frankly, to put the Sri Lanka on the radar to, to generate discussion. This is an important country. It is at the it is a geopolitical hub, uh, smack dab in the center of the Indian Ocean, halfway between the Strait of Malacca <coughs> and the Strait of Hormuz. You know the key sea lines of communication connecting energy suppliers in the Middle East to energy consumers in East Asia it is uh, it's on our radar for a reason because it does have a lot of geopolitical value um, and so it, it's my I've been appealing to uh, friends in government and elsewhere uh, to take this this country and these matters more seriously it's a crusade I think David and I have probably both been on Ensad. Uh, and Olivia for for many years now, and and we do see the attention there. It's just unfortunately as of late for the wrong reasons. But I am hopeful um, that the domestic political crisis that's now ongoing can be resolved in a in a democratic manner, and that really what's been a, a few good years in in U.S. Sri Lanka relations. I mean, there has been significant improvement in ties since the 2015 elections. And so long as there's not democratic uh, backsliding here or major concerns about human rights again in the future, I expect that relationship to continue uh, to go stronger in the years ahead. So thank you first and foremost to my, my expert speakers today. You guys did a wonderful job. And, and to the throngs of people who came out to see us today, thank you all.